As we're approaching Easter, I've been reflecting on the last couple of weeks and all that has happened. Constant news of the spreading pandemic and how many new cases, how many new deaths, what austere new measures are we taking now to stem the spread. Um, Add to that the quarantines and, and layoffs and all the rest. And it's somewhat helpful to realize this is nothing new, really. This is just the the latest chapter in the ongoing saga of pain in our world. Pandemics, hurricanes, earthquakes, tsunamis, terrorist attacks, wars, genocide, child abuse, abortions, broken families, angry fathers, suicide, relational turmoil, heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's, anxiety, fear, depression. Add it all up and, and the word that comes to my mind is, weariness just tired of all of this and in the grand scheme of things this is a relatively small blip on the radar of human suffering but it serves to beg the question again just one more time how did we end up here how did we get into this place that is so ugly where is God in this mess and that's actually exactly what Good Friday is all about Good Friday is simultaneously the darkest point in all of human history and the glorious answer to everything that's wrong with this world. But to understand Good Friday and the answer that it gives, we have to back up a lot. We need to go back right to the beginning. I want us to look this morning at Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Turn with me there. If you don't have your Bibles, grab them. You want to have God's Word open in your lap so that you can see what I'm looking at. But the beauty of Genesis 2 is that it takes us back before Genesis 3. Because Genesis 3 is where things begin to unravel. And so Genesis 2 takes us back to a time when there was no mess. Back to a day when things were beautiful, peaceful, even perfect. Let me read it for us. Genesis chapter 2, looking at verses 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of any tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Do you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks to us in the darkness, in the place of pain and suffering. God, you know our hearts this morning. You know there are many who are fearful, many who are burdened, many who are hurting. God, there is pain and suffering all around us. Lord, draw our eyes to the cross. Help us to see how it answers everything going on around us. Lord, give us hope. Help us to see your goodness, we pray in Jesus' name. Just looking at verses 15 and 16, the first thing that we have to see here is the goodness of God. The goodness of God is on such grand display in these verses. The Lord God took Man, and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. 
the Lord God. You see that Lord there, all caps? Um, That's God's personal name, Yahweh. He is personally, intimately involved here, and God uh, is Elohim. That's who he is, the Almighty, the Creator. And so the Lord God, the Almighty One, personally, intimately took the man and put the man into the Garden of Eden. The word put there is also carefully chosen. It's the Hebrew word nuah, which, which is literally, should be, could be translated rested. God rested Adam into the Garden of Eden. He nestled him there. It's a gift for him. And God rested him into this ideal setting, and then he commissions him to work it and to keep it. Now, if you read those words from today's vantage point, we're easily misled. To work and to keep is not toilsome labor. Imagine gardening before thorns, before weeds. Imagine gardening before death. Now, if that's my garden, there's nothing left if there's no thorns and nothing dead. But, but this is before the curse. And so, yes, he gives Adam a purpose and a calling to, to tend the garden, to shape it. But there's no sweat. There's no toil. There's no frustration or futility. It's perfect. Everything goes as it should. The world is working in harmony. It's all joy. In verse 16, he richly enjoys the fruit of his labor. God gave him every tree in the garden to eat from. He's perfectly provided for. Like a child building his imaginary kingdom and everything goes perfect, but this is for real. This is it. Adam was experiencing life as it was meant to be, life as it was created to be. He had perfect relationship with God, and he had perfect relationship with the world around him. There was peace and security and comfort and fullness and joy. He had it all. That was life as it was created to be. We have to see the the goodness of God on display here. So what happened? How do we get from there to now, to this mess that we're in? Well, in contrast to the goodness of God, in verse 17 then we get the first glimpse of the curse of the sin. Verse 17, God warns, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. This is the first mention of what we call the curse. God lays out for Adam um, to live in right relationship with me under the umbrella of, of my rule as God in obedience to me will be perfect joy and rest and peace and fullness and life. But if you walk away from that, if you reject me as God, if you begin to live as if you were creator instead of creation, throwing off my good rule over you and, and trying to rule yourself, it won't work. It will not go well. You will surely die. I didn't create you and my world to live outside of the parameters of my goodness. You'll surely die. It's a fairly simple statement in and of itself, but so much is wrapped up in that. Yes, physical death will be one of the obvious and and significant results. Um, To this point, there had been no death. It didn't exist on earth. We're not told the implications of that. Possibly Adam and Eve uh, and their children to come walking in obedience to God and fellowship with God and eating from the tree of life would just 
transition seamlessly into God's presence without death? We don't know. But what we do know is that their disobedience would mean the beginning of physical death. Now, God was gracious to them. Um, The day they ate of it, they didn't drop dead that moment. Uh, But God delayed his judgment. He withheld it, allowing them to live for hundreds of years, even before they would finally die. Uh, And the same he extended to their children and their children's children and to us today. And so every minute that we receive on this earth is grace. Is God withholding the judgment that we deserve for sin, allowing us to draw another breath under the delay of his justice? But it's not only physical death. There would also be judgment, a spiritual death, as it were. God is holy. He is infinitely committed to all that is good and pure and perfect and righteous. And so he is equally infinitely committed against all that is wrong. He's in opposition to it. And so stepping out from under God's rightful rule and his goodness and loving care, committing treason against the God who created us, we move out from being the objects of his perfect love to becoming the objects of his perfect justice and wrath. And when we die physically, instead of moving into eternal joy and life in his presence, we are bound for death, judgment, wrath in eternity. John, that's all about us and our sin. What does that have to do with this world? What does that have to do with coronavirus and cancer and earthquakes? What does it have to do with the real world? Well, our sin didn't affect just us. Like ripples out from a stone thrown in a pond, um, the effects of this sin go out. We see in Genesis 3, if we flip over um, verses 17 to 19, As God is explaining to Adam, this is what the curse will look like. He says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The curse, the effects of sin would corrupt the very ground that they walked on. The curse would would bring uh, death and and, and destruction and imperfection um, and plague into the world. And and thorns and thistles become the the symbol of how this world now becomes violent. It's it's warring against itself. What used to live in perfect harmony and life is now in this state of perpetual death and destruction. The curse of sin affects our world. And and think of the old washing machines. And and you'd hear the load begin to get a little off balance and it would clunk a little bit and that would build and grow until it rattles and shakes and bounces till it sounds like it's going to tear itself apart. Our world has been set off balance by sin. 
the normal functioning of our world is breaking down and it's spinning more and more out of control and and like feedback through a microphone, it's building on itself and perpetuating and it would tear itself apart if it were not for God restraining it, keeping evil at bay and holding our world together, not allowing our world to fly to pieces. And yet, he allows the effects of sin to be seen and to be felt. Why? Well, they point us back to the root of the problem. They help us see the effects of our sin and our need for him so that we would feel the, the pain and the damage that sin does in our world and our, cry, our hearts would, would cry out for an answer. A man with a brain tumor that he knows nothing about might suffer Horrible headaches, excruciating, debilitating pain. But if those headaches lead him to seek a doctor, to examine his situation, to to find and extract the tumor, then have not those headaches become a mercy to him? Have they not become his friend? Painful as they were, they, they saved his life, drawing attention to the tumor that would have surely killed him otherwise. And as the pain and suffering in this world, and we see the the effects of sin, it ought to wake us up. It ought to cause us to feel at the deepest level that, that something is really wrong here. This isn't right. This isn't the way it should be. And to cry out, what's the answer to all of this? And there's good news. There is an answer. There is a cure. For this curse. And it's the cross. A cure for the disease of this world that that gets right to the root of it. That doesn't just minimize symptoms. That doesn't just hold that at bay. But gets to the actual problem. Removing the tumor. A complete cure. A removal of the curse of sin right at its core. How? It's Good Friday. It's the cross of Jesus Christ that is the cure for sin. Um, Jesus, being God himself, the creator himself, descended into his creation. The perfect holy one became man. Subjected himself to the curse of sin in this world, in a physical body. But even from within the darkness of this broken world, He was constantly signaling, something's about to happen. Something's about to change. People often see the miracles of Jesus through such a narrow lens, and we miss what's actually happening. As if Jesus' goal um, was, was just the relative suffering of that particular person, just to relieve that temporary situation, but it's so much bigger than that. As Jesus made the blind see and the lame walk and he filled the hungry and calmed the storm and even raised the dead. It wasn't primarily about those individual lives. That wasn't the ultimate goal. He's signaling for the world to see, I have power over the curse. I can undo the damage done by sin. And so he asks the Pharisees in Matthew 9, verse 5, Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? 
And I'll tell you, the answer is, it's easier to say rise and walk than your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven is a much larger problem. But Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. He's saying loud and clear, I didn't just come to, to heal the, the symptoms of sin. It's not about this man picking up his mat and walking home. That's not the ultimate good that I'm doing here. I'm not about Tylenol and a Band-Aid, but, but so that you may know that I have the ability to do the greater, I will show you my power in the lesser. Jesus is pointing to the greater reality. That he came to take care of the root problem of sin. And after three years of miracles and teaching, on a dark Thursday night, he and his disciples wander into the Garden of Gethsemane where he prays, sweating drops of blood. Shortly after midnight, Judas would come in, followed by a band of soldiers who would arrest him and take him away. They would have this mockery of a trial. and He would be whipped and beaten and mocked. And though it was the hands of men carrying it out, Acts 4.27 tells us that, that Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel carried out this plan exactly as God's hand and plan had predestined for it to be. And as he's mocked and beaten, Unknowingly, they are continuing to display this truth of what is about to take place. They take thorns. Thorns, the very symbol of the the curse of sin infecting this world, infused into nature, and they wrap it into a crown and they place it on his head. And then they take him out to a place called Golgotha. And they put nails into his hands and feet, attaching him to a large wooden cross. And they lift him up for all to see. And in so doing, they make sense out of an obscure verse, out of Deuteronomy. Chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. And so the Apostle Paul, reflecting on these events in light of of Deuteronomy, uh, he says in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. He's saying Jesus hanging on that cross is is the symbol of the fact that he is under God's curse. He is bearing the curse of sin on himself. And those thorns pressed into his flesh show the, the, the curse, the damage of sin reverberating out into nature is coming crashing down on him. So that those who trust him might be redeemed from the curse might be bought out from under its captivity, brought into new life. There is no sin, no judgment, no pain, no suffering, no death. And at the same moment, 
of his death, the curtain in the temple, the curtain that divided, that kept sinful men separate from the the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, in the inner sanctum of the temple, that curtain is torn in two. And and God is saying, I'm opening the way. He's fixing our greater problem, much more than the problem of this physical assail of the curse of sin, is the fact that we're separated from God. He's opening the way that we can be restored into a right relationship with God, right fellowship with Him again. No curse. No separation from God. He's the cure. He took it on Himself. And He's the end of all of it. The the cross is the cure for every pain. It's the answer that our hurting bodies and aching hearts are crying out for. Sunday, we're going to look beyond the cross. We're going to look at the life that Jesus offers after dealing with the curse. John's word, Jesus' words in John 11, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. But today, I want us to end here. Where are we now? If Jesus death on the cross was the end of the curse, then why, 2,000 years later, are we still facing a worldwide pandemic? Why is my garden still overgrown with thorns and thistles? Why is there still pain and suffering in this world all around us? Why is God still distant? And the answer is God's kindness and His patience. See, the full end of the curse will come. But it will come with the end of this world. And that will come with the end of all of those who continue to reject God, who continue to throw off His rightful rule and continue to rebel against Him. And so 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in fulfilling His promises, as some count slowness. God feels slow. God, where are you? We're we're suffering here. We're wrestling here. We're aching here. Why is this taking so long? God's not slow. Not as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's prolonging this period. Not out of weakness, not out of wrath but out of mercy and patience, waiting that the, that the maximum number of rebels might be reconciled to him, that the maximum number of those who are under the curse of death and judgment might be brought into life and peace and hope. Would hear his call, turn away from sin and trust in Christ. Does this world make you weary? Does it make you long for something more? It should. It should cause us to to cry out aching and weeping and mourning. But let it turn you to Christ. Let it push our hope even more to Him, rejoicing in the cross. He's the cure. He's the answer that our hearts long for. In Him is the end of the curse, and in Him is newness of life. And one day, 
One day we will know the full end of the curse. This world will be renovated, rebuilt, and we'll have a new heavens and a new earth, and we'll be with him in a world with no sin. But today, today we wait, surrounded by the the effects of sin that point us back to the glory of the cross, that remind us again uh, our need for a Savior, and that cause us to worship Good Friday as we rejoice in what God has accomplished on that cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have not treated us as our sins deserve, that you have not dealt with us with with immediate death as we deserve, but you have been patient, that you allow us to draw breath again. And God, that that you are not caught off guard, that you are not helpless against this, and that you, in your glorious plan to display the wonders of your mercy and grace, sent your Son to be mocked and mistreated, beaten and bruised, to bear the curse of sin in his body on that tree, that in him we might have peace, that in him we might escape the judgment that we deserve, that in him our relationship with you might be restored. Oh God, you know that many face fear and trial this morning, that many face loss. There's just a sense of hopelessness in our world today, but you are our hope. God, we pray that through this, um, our hearts will be turned to you. And God, that there are many who have pushed against you and fought against you, who might have their lives um, mercifully brought down, that they might turn to Christ, that the symptoms of this disease would point them to the glorious cure, the Savior. Lord, we rejoice with a sense of of sorrow and grief at the cost of our sin, but with joy and hope knowing that you are a God who is merciful and gracious and who has dealt with the curse of sin and will one day wipe it out. Lord, your name be praised. In Jesus' name.